Hey y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 69. Great interview today. We get into stuff like setting boundaries, mixing the bass first, building a brand, testing your ideas, and why you should find the thing that you would do for free and make that your career. So along with being an engineer and producer, my guest this week is also a father, like many of my guests have been, and he's also written a few kids' books. So since I am a new father, I thought, hey, Maybe let's compare parenting to making a record. I'll ramble on that a bit. You all know the stranger the analogy, the more excited I get about it, right? Now, I definitely don't think making a record is going to provoke the immediate life-changing perspective shift that happens when you become a parent. But there is a piece of that perspective that I think the best producers and musicians in the world have. And I should tell you that the perspective change thing is real. If you're not the one carrying the child, there's a lot about the whole thing that doesn't really feel tangible. You might wonder... When will I feel different? Will I even feel different? Until the moment the baby arrives. And then any and all questions are answered immediately. The only thing that matters from that point on is that baby. Being a father has been absolutely amazing. I should clarify that before I ramble on about making records. But I think the most interesting part about it is that it's been a very humbling experience. And that's where our music tie-in begins. See, when you have a baby, the only thing that matters is that baby and its future. All of your choices are made with that in mind. How do I raise the best child I can raise? How do I set them up for success? Nothing is really about you anymore. See, there's a part of everybody that is to a certain degree a little selfish, right? Not in like an obvious bad way. Like, for example, you've probably lived alone and or been single. You can do whatever you want. You have no roommates or significant other that you have to find compromise with. And then one day you'll end up in a serious relationship and some of those do-whatever-you-want freedoms will start to disappear, but you won't even realize it. You'll just start to let them go. And then finally one day you may decide to be a parent. (laughs) That, that, That is the end of that. Any last inkling of doing the things you want to do will be gone. But you know what? You'll be totally okay with it because that's the choice that you made. The other humbling aspect of being a parent is the inherent self-reflection. You'll think about how you grew up, the life you want your child to have, the example you set with your actions. The list could go on forever. So what what about music? Once again, we're listening to my music podcast and I'm rambling on about nothing music related. Well, here's my point. I think making music should be humbling the way that raising a child is. Think about it. In both situations, you're trying to create something and put it out into the world and have it be set up for success as best as possible. I think the idea that after you become a parent, nothing matters except your child can and should be applied to making music. The only thing that matters is creating the best art you can create with the people that you're creating it with. If you want to be the best collaborator that you can be, then you need to be humble. You can't have an ego. 
When you first start your musical journey, those are your single bachelor pad days. Those are the days you can overplay, overproduce, make the decisions that you want to make regardless of how they play out in the context of the music. Because you're learning during this time. You're discovering your sound. The same way that as you grow up, you're figuring out what kind of person you want to be. You can't really raise a child or make great art if you don't know who you are first. And so as you grow musically, it becomes more about the music. It's less about your mix or the perfect snare sound or your guitar solo. It's about seeing the whole, what's best for the song. This maturing in your music making is like the humbling of having a child. It's like your musical equivalent to the loss of adult freedom that parents feel, which is tough, but it's necessary. And this is the way all of the best producers, musicians, and songwriters approach making music. I've seen some of the best musicians in the world play the simplest part possible. Why? Because that's what needs to be done for the song. It's never about them anymore. It's always about the whole picture. And those people have also usually taken the time to reflect back on their musical journey and identify the things that they've enjoyed about making music, the experiences that they've had that contributed to the best musical outcome, and the things that resulted in bad vibes. Similar to the way a parent might think about their past experiences and how those will dictate how they'll raise their child. So that's kind of it, really. I just wanted to encourage y'all to be selfless and humble in your music making and do what you need to do to raise the best musical babies you can. Today's guest, DK Waddell, wears a ton of hats. I'll see if I can maul in here. First off, he's a studio owner, mixing and mastering engineer, working with artists including Kanye West and The Game. He's a content creator and podcaster. He created and co-hosts one of the top podcasts in music called The Mixing Music Podcast. He's also an author, having written three children's books with companion music. And if all those things don't scream entrepreneur, then let me add that to the list. He was nominated for Forbes 30 Under 30, probably the only time I'm going to get to say that on this podcast. And his latest venture is a project called Outdonesia, which I'm sure he'll tell us some more about. So welcome to the show, DK Waddell. Thank you so much. How you doing, man? It's nice to meet. Yeah, it's nice to meet you too. I am excited to be here. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Thank you, Travis. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time. I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Uh, this is my second interview of the day. Uh, which is not normal for me. But I think we're good because you have a podcast. So if I black out, just jump in there and just take over. <laughs> <laughs> I could totally do that. <laughs> but uh, you know who hipped me to you initially was uh, Chris Graham. He was like, oh, you got to check out DK. He's got a podcast. He's in LA. You guys should connect. And then I, you know, got caught up starting this show. I never reached out. But, you know, hindsight, I probably should have because you seem to know what's up with podcasts. You probably could have given me a couple tips. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, Chris Graham is a good friend and uh, I would say one of my mentors as well, just indirectly. He's he's a really good person. Yeah, yeah, he is. He's a great guy, good hang. So, you know, I was looking around and doing some research and there's so many things I want to talk about, like I feel unprepared. <laughs> but we were just talking about winging it. So we're winging it all day on this one. Well, this is like the first time that I'm excited because I came prepared where oh. I actually listened to a bunch of your episodes Oh, before shit. this interview, just to make sure that, you know, I knew who the heck you were and what kind of interviews <laughs> you were doing. And I don't think I've ever done that before. So oh, I'm prepared, though. So we're good. Perfect. I mean, I have notes, but they're all <laughs> going to go to hell quick like they always do. So, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I was going to save this for later, but I was like looking around and I found the Outdonesia website. And maybe that's a fun place to start before we get into your story. What's going on with this project? It looks like it's pretty in-depth. Yeah, Outdonesia is basically a agency or a label, a collective of AAPI, Asian 
musicians and creatives. So it started off mostly as like a producer group. We were working together on a couple bigger projects. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh, you're Asian too. And of course, there's this like big community around that. So uh, tribalism, you know, and we just got together and decided we liked each other, decided to turn this into a thing. So it started off as a producer group. Then we've signed like an artist with a couple one-off deals. And we now have a videographer, photographer and marketing people. So it's like kind of becoming this like creative agency hoping to become like a second place 88 rising is kind of the idea. Cool. And uh, we're not sure exactly what we're going to do with it, but we just finished up our website. We're releasing music as Outdonesia multiple times a month. We have multiple music videos and have awesome credits. We're actually verified on Genius already for a Kid Leroy track that got leaked. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't know if it's going to come out anymore because it did, but... Yeah, it's a fun project that we meet up at least twice a week for. Cool. So it's it's like, because I was looking at the website, it looks like it's an all-in creative agency like you were talking about. But then it also sounds like you guys are just working together and making stuff that might be for, like you said, Kid Leroy, as well as signing artists. Yeah. So honestly speaking, I'm not going to pretend like we're a bigger deal than we are. Like, we're just a bunch <laughs> of Asian boys and girls that like each other because we're Asian and we wanted to do something creative together and we're trying to figure our stuff out. Well, that's cool. That's kind of what it is. But we're a little bit more organized than that sounded. But that's basically what it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, the website looks spectacular. So, you know, I, I, lo I love to see, you know, something that I really like about you and what I know about you is that you seem to like, you start a lot of businesses, you go down a lot of roads. And uh, I think that's cool. Having the, the balls to go start a bunch of stuff, I think is dope. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, th this is, I'm actually, I always consider myself an entrepreneur first. This is so funny. I always, I always laugh about this, but out of all the businesses and that I've started and the entrepreneur spirit that I have and the business mind that I have, I happen to find my biggest source of passion and self-satisfaction in a part of the smallest industry doing a job that is the least scalable, like, you know, <laughs> an engineer. And I always kind of <laughs> laugh about that, like, dang. Because my business mind is like, this is just not satisfying. <laughs> Only servicing one person at a time and I have to do it. But my creative side is just, it's so healthy for me to mix and I just love it so much. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's get into your story a little bit. Maybe you can tell us where you think you got that entrepreneurial spark from. How'd you get into music originally? Good question. I got into listening to music because... My parents were casual listeners of music. I have a very young mother and father. I think my dad had me when he was like 22, like really oh, wow. young. And so I grew up listening to, and he's a Caucasian dude, originally from Utah. And he listened to like a lot of Eminem and like pop rap in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. My mom is full on Okinawan and I was born in Okinawa, Japan and she's an immigrant. So like I grew up listening to like a lot of Japanese 80s music. So like a lot of that funky, what we call like city pop now. Nice. Yeah. And a lot of like that sort of stuff. And then I moved to Chicago when I was about five and lived in around Chicago and suburbs of Chicago for 10 years. That's when I really learned to love music. And I would cuddle around the radio every night and listen to 96.3, which is this like pop R&B radio station. And there was this Asian radio host, Julian, on the radio. I don't know if he's doing it anymore, but I would listen to him like every day, every time I'd like wait for him to get on the show and he'd be playing 
uh, 2000s pop hits like Rihanna, Kanye, Chris Brown, Neo, you know, that sort of stuff. And that's when I fell in love with music. It became something that I looked forward to every night as I went to bed just to listen to music. And I got in trouble to, for it so many times, like staying up way too late. And and I didn't really, my mom and dad both kind of sang out of like peer pressure from their parents, <laughs> not professionally, but um, because it was like the cute thing to do, watching your children sing, you know? And You're right. so I kind of heard them singing around the house every once in a while. We weren't a musical family at all, but I didn't really think that music would become a career. I joined a band midway through high school. I was uh, in a morning class and the dude next to me is like, yo, my bass player just quit. I know you're in choir do you want to uh, be play bass? And I was like, I have no idea how to play bass. And he's like, no, don't worry. It's easy enough. And first off, he was a liar. <laughs> Just tease it. But uh, I learned how to play bass at least well enough to be in this like pop punk kind of thing. And, and my parents, neither of my parents listened to rock music at all. Like so much so that I didn't know who Aerosmith was until Guitar Hero came out. Oh, damn. Like, Guitar Hero 3 was the first time I ever listened to rock music. Any time I have ever listened to music that was like a band, it was reggae because reggae is really popular in Japan. Yeah. And so, like, I didn't know, like, it was this whole thing. I was like, I'm in a rock band and I've never even listened to rock music before. And uh, we ended up needing to record and I kind of volunteered and, and actually the lead singer and the guitar player, they were brothers. So they kind of, the three of us were recording the band, learned how to record drums and it, it was total ass. Like it was really bad. But that's kind of how I got my start into recording. Then I did a two-year church service mission in Japan. Um, oh, wow. And during that time, there's lots of time to reflect and think about what you want to do with your life when you're, you know, uh, quote unquote, serving the Lord for two years. And <laughs> uh, I had a big epiphany as I was kind of pondering and thinking about what I wanted to do with my life, I was actually thinking about becoming a psychiatrist. I, I've always done well with speaking with people and at least being a, I'm not very good at listening, but <laughs> at least being, uh, having empathy. And uh, I was like, I'm going to be a psychologist. But I sat there and I thought I had the most weird, and to this day, it still kind of blows my mind that I thought this way. But in my mind, I was like, would I be a human garbage can and be a therapist for free? And I thought, genuinely speaking, no, I don't know if I'd be willing to do that for free. And then the next thought was, then you'd be doing it for money. And not that money is wrong. You know, I, I think people have the right to work hard and earn money. Right. And whatever they deserve. But, but it was more like, I didn't want to do anything for money. Like money was just a motivation that didn't feel evil, but it just didn't feel like DK. And so I was like, but I'm willing to do music for free. And music served as like a therapist for me and most everybody else. Yeah. And so it's like a more scalable form of therapy that I can participate in. So from that point, when I was like 20, I decided I'm going to go full force into music. I came back from Japan, went to college, music, started my first studio when I was about 21, 22. And uh, yeah. That's where I'm at now. And right now I'm 28, just to put it in perspective. So I think it was like 2016 <laughs> I started a studio. That's crazy. Well, you know what's cool is that you, you know, you had that time to think, or I guess maybe that you chose to use that time to think, you know, <laughs> you didn't have to actually reflect on what you wanted to do with your life. But uh, yeah, I think it's cool that at like a younger age that you would, you know, approach your life like that. I mean, I think most people when they're like about to go to college age, they're just like, all right, cool. Which party am I going to go to on Friday? As long as I get 
you know, these grades, I'm going to be all good. And then after college, I can figure out what I'm going to do. So yeah, I think it works out better if you can figure out like what your passion is. And the idea of the money thing that you just said is amazing. People should go back and listen to that again, because yeah, if you wouldn't do something for free, then, you know, it's just a job. You're just doing it for money. It's really interesting perspective. I like that. Yeah. And and the thing that I want to say about that is that I've been having internal struggles because what I don't want to do, I think it's wrong to say that money is evil and that anybody with money is bad. I've actually, personal experience, I find that people that are doing well from their own efforts, not from inheritance, but from right. their own efforts tend to be genuinely kind, nicer people um, when you get to know them. So, and what I don't want to do, I have this feeling that if I were to ever say money is bad and I, and I don't want to make money, then what I'm doing is, is cursing myself to never, ever be wealthy. <laughs> so I don't want to say that money is bad. It's more like for me, that just felt, it just didn't feel personal to me. Like I didn't want money to be a motivation to do something. I wanted to make money because I was passionate about it. Yeah. And the passionate was first. Right. Well, I find that a lot of those people that get like super wealthy, well, I guess, I mean, maybe not super wealthy, but a lot of people that do really well, they're successful. A lot of them, they like to have the freedom to give back to like have their their education parts and their, you know, charities or whatever they want to do. But there's like an aspect of like, I've got everything that I need. I feel good about what I'm doing. I want to help somebody else. Like I'm going to mentor kids or whatever. And I think that people that do make it to that level should always consider giving back. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think this is one of the secrets to life where uh, my favorite book of all time is called The Go-Giver Yeah, by Bob Berg and one other dude. I forgot the second author's name, but this is actually like, I think it's like one of those business books, self-help books that has actually made me the most amount of money and changed my mindset where it's more about being a go-giver and the, instead of being a go-getter, where you're, instead of seeking to take, take, take and pitch yourself and try to find customers, it's more like, yo, let's just be friends and let me figure out ways that I can service you. And so basically kind of like feeding karma, you know, like yeah, thinking about like, if I were to kill a mammoth back in the caveman days, I can't eat that mammoth by myself. So I give it to <laughs> neighboring tribes, hoping that they would give me their meat when I don't have any. Yeah. Because that meat's going to rot. That that meat's going to go bad in a couple weeks, you know? So Totally. And so it's more like feeding karma. I'm trying to... So that's always paid off. I really do feel like giving is the secret to success. And the more that I... And granted, I have very little minute experience, but the more that I kind of live out my career and try to figure this shit out, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I think I do know that giving in some capacity definitely works. Yeah. Well, you know, kind of a, a little tangent parallel... I feel like when you do, you put yourself out there to give back in some way or to mentor, you learn a lot more yourself than you might put onto whoever you're working with. You know, it's like when I started this podcast, I, I wanted to kind of share with people the ideas that kind of shifted my view of my career into more of like a positive light. And the more I try to like hammer those points home for people, like the better I feel every day about, it's like I'm basically just doing this podcast so I'd make myself smarter but hopefully somebody else is getting smarter. But you know, you know what I mean? I, I don't want to sound like I'm making myself smarter, but you know, you know what I mean. No, that, I mean, that's why I started my podcast. It was honestly just an experiment to, you know, have like a journal basically of my learning experiences. And then it kind of just happened to get bigger. I mean, it was planned for sure for it to grow with a lot of like planning and SEO. And I have a podcast specific media marketing team. So I definitely used our own company's resources and things. So that's why it's been doing so well. But yeah, for me, it started off as I want to share my learning experience. That's all it was. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. You know, you find people that connect with 
your form of it. You know, it's like whatever, the way that you present your story and your things connects with an audience, the way that I present mine connects with a different audience. So it's, you know, everybody finds their, people find their people. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Since we're kind of talking entrepreneurial, I wanted to ask you, since you have started multiple businesses, some outside of music, are there things that you've taken from your, your business entrepreneur side that you think work in your music career on a daily basis? Anything that like a kid should like really think about that they're probably not thinking about? Hmm. I can't think off the top of my head like specific things, but I do think it's more of like the mindset where oftentimes I find that engineers and producers don't think about like scalability or like supply and demand, general economics and how things, <laughs> how money influences entire societies and, and people. And then also the mindset of like testing ideas Ooh. and trying things, making mistakes. Like for example, one small way that we'd apply this mindset is like people would be like, yes or no, don't or do run a discount for your services. Like for, and then reasons why. But the real answer and what an entrepreneur should think is, I want to try giving discounts and if it doesn't work, I won't do it again or at least try with different parameters. But it's more like a testing mindset and there's no set way of doing things and and the fact that I wasn't such a hardcore engineer to begin with is I have this weird balance where I have this hardcore respect for engineers but it's not like I worship them like I I see the marketing behind the analog equipment and the you know the things that are coming out and like as a marketer myself like I'm not a consumer and I think that most engineers are still very consumer mentality and I'm not really driven by the same factors as most engineers like you know what gets me really stoked is numbers and trackable data and that gets me <laughs> like and systems like that gets me so stoked and like when i build a website especially like around like my children's books like the funnel and how i collect information from people and how i sell it and distribute it i'm more proud of that than the actual book like <laughs> like that's just how i'm built like i I don't know. It's it's not even like the collection of money. It's more like the systems. And, and I think that's definitely more of a mindset. If you're going to school, I do think that like I've talked about this before, as far as like education in college, the classes that have, I can say, have made me the most amount of money, even as an engineer, was economics and advertising and basic general marketing 101 and business and accounting. Like it was those meta business skills, like how do you pay taxes? Why and how it works? Those are like skills that I think are very overlooked. Oh yeah. And those are the skills I think really set me apart from other studio owners and other engineers for sure. I agree with that completely. I was at a episode a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about marketing and Madeline Elise, I don't know if you listened to that episode. She was talking about, uh, you know, before you put any ad money behind something, like test the content, like figure out what, like what works, you know? And, and then I, I immediately thought of like all of the artists that I've worked with or like projects that, you know, I've signed and, and released. And it's like, what do you want to do? 
well, the album's out. Let's run a Facebook ad with like the cover and then we're going to get 10,000 plays, right? It's going to work. But it's no, it's not going to work. You have to like, like you said, test. And I don't know why these things just don't come to engineers. Like I never thought, she blew my mind. And I was like, God, that's so basic. So that's that general idea was actually re-emphasized. Like Launchpod Media, my podcast media company, it was built off of this idea. So in Tim Ferriss's book, Four Hour Workweek, yeah, great book. He talks about it, shadow testing with ads. So like the ad goes to a dead link, a d- yes. dead website, but like you can see the click-through rates and you can change the graphic to see if the graphic is the reason why the ad's not as performing as well or if it's actually like the title. So with all of our podcasts that we work with or start with Launchpad Media, we do a lot of shadow testing and we have a lot of proprietary, like we're one of the data kingpins in the podcasting world because we have so much proprietary data. That's cool. That's something that, Anybody can do, but we just do it a lot more hardcore and have <laughs> now have the experiments to, to back and forth test. So yeah, that is a big thing, like testing and, and shadow testing. Yeah, well now now you open the door. Now I have to ask: When you started uh, your podcast, did you go through like a couple different names and, and concepts? So yes and no. I, I think like the first concept, I didn't do it as hardcore as we made make our clients do it. Right. So the reason why I started my podcast is because out of the three owners, I was the only one that's never worked on a podcast. I was a podcast listener and an engineer, but I've never like had my own podcast. So I decided in order to help better serve the company and to know what I'm talking about at these like seminars that we'd go to as as a company, I decided to, that was part of the reason why I started the podcast was to know what podcasting is and how it works. Um, the first rendition that we never released was called The Business of Music or something like that. Right. Then there was some testing, not as much as we make our clients do, our paying clients do, but there was enough testing to figure out, okay, mixing music. So that's why, like, for example, and that's on purpose, like the name of the podcast, Mixing Music, like most people are, that's very SEO, like we're a very SEO heavy company. Yeah. So like when people look for like audio, mixing music, my podcast is genuinely called Mixing Music, Break, Audio Engineering, Music Production, Music Business. So I'm like hitting every keyword. So if you look up like Mixing Music or Mixing Podcast or Music Podcast, I'm like top hit. Yeah. Every single time. And so most of my audience is just from searchability, discoverability. I'm just using the hacking the algorithm. So my podcast is probably ass, but it doesn't matter because they get to me first. <laughs> so like, I think your and, podcast and, is good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. But it doesn't matter. It's, it's like, that's the point. It's like they find me first. Is And so that's kind of how it was built around. And uh, there's some like other algorithm hacks too, like getting five-star reviews and how you can actually leverage that to get more discoverable on like Apple podcasts and like now there's like a ranking system with Spotify and different things. So yeah, it's just been a lot of that sort of stuff, but that's amazing. Do I, do I have, are you going to send me an invoice when we're done? <laughs> <laughs> do I owe you money for this? I mean, I could give you a lot more information, but like, that's just me. And I was mostly, I was technically and, and granted we were only a small by small, I mean like 15 people team. So it was like, kind of big, but it was like 15, 10, 15 employees plus the owner. So like it's a small enough team, but I was the chief creative officer or just like the creative. So I was the one that like basically project managed and helped create like brand Bibles for all these companies and like put it all together from a marketing visual perspective. Because at the end of the day, we are like a content marketing 
companies. So like it, yeah. there's the data side and then there's like the visual and branding side. And I was in charge of the visual branding side. So there's other people on the team that like we know way more data and understand a lot more, but I can give you as much as I know for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we'll just, we'll tack a little bit. What do you say to like the artist, producer, engineer who's listening to this that is thinking, this sounds like it's going to cost me money in marketing without making any money. Like, what do you say to that person who doesn't want anything to do with what we're talking about because they don't want to spend any money? So I think that one of the reasons why marketing and, and I'm going to say branding, and I want to clarify a little bit more what that means. But the reason why that's wrong is because you don't have to pay any money. First off, if you wanted to pay money to do shadow testing, then Tim Ferriss literally says 15 to 25 bucks. Like, it's not a big amount of money that you can test with, you know? I mean, you can obviously do hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars, but to get started, you don't need that much. But I'm first off talking like in 2022, in this new millennia, getting views, getting noticed has been so democratized. It has never been easier to get attention if you make content ever in the history of humankind. So like if you don't build a brand in one way or another, then it's hurting you. Because building a brand is only going to help you. Like my co-host Lou and my business partner, we were talking about this. He's like, oh, but I have a brand. Because what we do is mostly what we call a white glove service. It's a very one-to-one, I do a catered service for each artist or label or a &R or whatever that I'm working with. I don't have a drag and drop checkout box and then you just get your product. It's a very one-to-one. -one. There's lots of emails and revisions. And most engineers are, especially mixers. So with this white glove service, why would they hire you, Travis, or me, DK, when we're more expensive than anybody else that can do, as they claim, just as good? Well, it's because I'm DK and you're Travis. Right. <laughs> it's the brand. <laughs> like, yeah. It's literally because, yeah, so Lou was like, oh, I don't need to make content because people trust me and love me because I'm Lou. And he's exactly right. There is a brand. Like, you're making a brand regardless of whether you're doing it actively or not. True. And so if you do it actively, it's only going to help you. And for me personally, it's gone as far as this, this blows my mind. And this is very rare, but I went live on Instagram one day for 10 minutes and talked to somebody for 10 minutes. I got busy. I felt really stupid. But during that time, when I talked to someone, I made a thousand dollars because of that dude in the next two weeks because I went live on Instagram for 10 minutes. And granted, that's a really rare scenario, but those are opportunities that you're missing that you will never get if you don't shoot, you know, for example. So it's like, it's very important to build a brand and people are like, okay, but like, if I don't want to seem facetious or prideful, well, the reason why people are willing to pay me money off of finding me on the internet is not because I look good or I sound intelligent. It's because I'm giving them value in the form of knowledge. And so it doesn't matter how good looking I am or if my equipment looks good. When I give them valuable information that they deem is valuable, any listener is going to feel like they owe me or they trust, inherently just trust me more. And trust is what makes me money. Trust is the final barrier between a potential client and a paying client. And so you have to build your brand and it's totally free to do it. Like nobody's stopping you other than your own ego and your time. So like you making a podcast, like it doesn't matter how big or small it is. Like you're reaching people and I say this, like, part of it is like monetary gain. Like, you're help potentially building potential clients in one way or another, however you monetize them. 
But then there's also like the giving mentality of it. Like you become an authority. And that's something that whether or not you monetize is great. Yeah. <laughs> and, and to be honest, kind of like for me, ego building a little bit. Like I love it. Like I, love, <laughs> I love being helpful to people. I love it when people tell me like, you were so helpful and I was able to do this. And I, and like literally one of my uh, mentees, mentorees, I don't know what the word is, like my student, I only have one student right now and he's a good friend of mine. He like made a significant amount of money for the first time ever. And he's like, dude, it's all thanks to you. And I'm like, first off, that was your work. You just did what I said, but that was your work. And second off, like that did feel good though. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that did make me feel better. Like I made this dude money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's energizing. It was a, a I was just, I've done some mentoring for people that went to the same college as me. And, you know, at the end of like a meeting, you know, you might take an hour, hour and a half out of your day, you walk away from the coffee meeting, but I feel better, you know, like maybe, maybe that helped that person, maybe not. And then I'm more energized for the day and I probably do a little bit better job than I would have done if I just sat at home and got mad about the snare drum or whatever, you know? Yeah, for sure. I, I used to do this. I need to do this again, but especially when I just moved to LA, I used to have a budget every week and every month of me asking someone to go out to lunch or go for a coffee break just to network with someone. So like I had a set amount of time and income dedicated to paying for someone's lunch. Nice. And that was actually, that was probably one of the biggest return on investment type spending. <laughs> that was like the best spending that I could have done. And I don't know why I don't do it anymore. That's a bold move. I like that. Yeah. You should get back on that. I know for real. I've Or I'm, I'm going to steal it. Somebody listening to the show is going to steal it. I hope you do because that, I mean, that's the secret of many people, right? Is just meeting someone that somehow worked out really well in some capacity. Yeah. I wrote down trust. Uh, you were talking about trust as like that last barrier to win people over. And I was just on podcast I did this morning, we were just talking about how, you know, it takes a long time to build that trust up with the label people, the A&R people, the managers, but like, that's what you're doing is like every job that you're doing or every conversation you're having is just like, you're just planting those little trust seeds until finally somebody's like, yeah, we're on board with this person. I get over here and do this gig. We fully trust that you know what you're doing. Yeah. Okay, so let's do, um, let's do some mixing talk. Ooh. And maybe some like, some, some, uh, some systems. Because if I remember correctly, when you were on Secret Sonics, you said you did something crazy, like mix a thousand songs or something in a year. There's so many songs. 2020. I mixed a thousand and nineteen songs. Okay, so I've got a lot of questions. <laughs> I'm more than happy to answer them. Logistically, how? How'd you do it? So that's about 2.7 or 2.8 songs a day for 365 days. <laughs> Hold on. I know people don't believe me, but I'm being dead serious about this. First off, I will never, ever, ever recommend anybody to do that as it's, <laughs> it's cool. And it's like saying it out loud is just like crazy. This guy's inspiring. But honestly, I almost quit music because of it. It was one of the least healthy things that I've ever done in my life. And like, I became a worse husband. I became a worse father. Like, I got damn good at my craft, dude. <laughs> don't, don't doubt that. <laughs> but like, and I built systems like nobody's business, but it was not healthy. And that's the first thing. Like, it sounds like this thing where like, I want to brag about and part of me does and I do brag about it. But the biggest thing that I learned is you got to take this slow. And it wasn't worth the amount of experience that I gained for how much like personal love for the craft and myself that I lost. So that's the first preface that I want to make is it wasn't a good thing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so one of the systems that I made is I had every 
assistant and intern and their dog prepping for me. Like it got to the point where my wife who does not do music in any capacity was prepping sessions for me in logic. And I don't even use logic, but that was just one, another dog that we had. I had like three other like assistants, friends that were just prepping sessions for me. I had one dude that was like kind of ghost mixing 90% of the music. And I ended up just mastering some of them and how I like made the clients is that year. This is really dumb. So that year I had, I was about to move to LA and so I was like in an in-between position where I needed income but there's this dude that worked for another that was like a sync library company and he was mixing and mastering every, all of like the composer's works himself but he wanted to just full on be a manager and he was actually doing real well this company's doing well and so he had posted online and someone forwarded me this Instagram story of like hey I'm looking to hire someone to mix on an hourly basis and so he had all of these songs that were stemmed. So it was mostly like 10 to 40 tracks. Right. And it was like library music, mostly without vocals, instrumentals. Okay. And all he wanted me to do was prep the sessions, mix them, and not even master them, and then move on to the next one. And he had hundreds of songs ready to be processed. And it was, and we agreed to $15 an hour, which is like no money. It was very stupid. And so because of how little money I was making, how many songs there was to go through and the pressure that he was giving me and like, and honestly, like, I hate being inefficient. Like, my least favorite thing to do, like, with any job, part-time or full-time job that I've had before, which was mostly like when I was 18, say, you know, 15 to 18. Right. I hate standing around. Like, I hate just waiting there. I just cannot do that. So, if he's like making me do it, I'm going to do my best at it and do as fast as he can. So he gets the most out of his money that he's spending thinking like the entrepreneur, like I hope he, I can get him the most amount of the least amount of money. Um, I ended up mixing like those songs were super fast. They were prepped for me. And then I spent maybe like 20 to 30 minutes on each track. So I'd be mixing like two, three songs an hour. And I do that. Like I'd max out, I go kaput at like three hours. So like I do that for like three hours. And then I had a label thing that was like mostly unpaid for royalties where I had, I think about 12 artists and the deal was you can, I'll mix your songs for free and let you use my facilities to record with an intern in training or whatever in exchange for like the royalties. And you, here's the deal. The only, the only way you're going to stay in this group is consistency. Like as a marketing content dude, it's like, it's about consistent content. So it's like, you have to release a song at least once a month. And like two of them were releasing once a week. And so I had dozens of songs <laughs> like a month from just this, <laughs> this label thing. And then obviously I had my regular clients and a couple other like label contacts uh, that was like other sync. And like I had a lot of like mastering gigs too. And it was just like, I didn't make as much money as I wanted to, but I got a lot of shit done. And honestly, like just thinking about it is like... Stressing you out. Because I got like, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old and I cannot, I cannot even imagine taking away time from that. So luckily I didn't, my one-year-old, I only had one child and he was chill. So, oh, that was not a good time in my life, but I did it. It was just an ego thing. <laughs> so, well, that kind of filters, you answered, I had some other questions about it, but you kind of answered most of them. That kind of like leads us into work-life balance. Because I know something I've heard you talk about. Uh, you seem to be very family-oriented, very pro-balance, something that most people in this business, they don't even understand. I didn't understand it until I met my wife. Like, do you have any anything you want to share about just relationships and music? Yeah. Okay. 
I have boundaries out the wazoo. Like, I have so many boundaries. Like, yeah, I do not accept most, like, I, a little bit less than half the work that comes to me, I do not accept anymore. Oh, wow. Oftentimes, because of the budget, and I'd rather pass it off to someone that charges less that I believe will do a good job and take a little kickback from it. Obviously, I, I get, get a little commission from it. Um, I won't tell them no and then kick them into the dust, but I won't do the work right. myself. And also, like, I don't work with anybody that smokes. Like, things like that. I will not work past 6 p.m. Like, unless you're paying me a hell of a lot more. But even then, like, for example, there was a celebrity that hired me for, like, five days and ever since then, I'll even say no to big A&R. Like, no, nah, if it's past midnight, no, nah, I'm not doing it. For sure. I don't care how much you're paying. Because, like, my mental sanity is not worth that extra $50 an hour. So, like, that's just how it is for me. And, and it's this idea, like, I know he's kind of, like, debated, especially because he dips into, like, politics. But, like, I'm a fan of, like, Jordan Peterson. I'm not, like, a fanboy. Like, <laughs> like everybody makes fun <laughs> of. But I love, I'm big into psychology. Yeah. As I have a lot of trauma and, and messed up complexes. <laughs> and so, like, and I, again, I had an interest in wanting to be a psychiatrist. I love his clinical psychiatry studies and his reports. And one of the things that he says in his book, 12 Rules for Life, is, or maybe it was an interview on YouTube. I don't remember. But he has talked before about Never raising children that you'll end up hating. And for me, like, for example, there's been many people that I know that, like, every time they go into work, they resent it. I hate this client. I, I don't know why I'm doing this mix. Why are they making me tune the vocals? I should be charging more for this. This is my tenth, like fifth revision. I can't believe it. Like, there's complaining. Who you end up working with and what kind of people or clientele that you end up catering to is your fault. <laughs> it is your choice. <laughs> like, if you don't like trap gangster rappers, then you should be saying no to trap, trap gangster, gangster rap. rappers. And so, for me, I'm big on boundaries, not because of an ego pride thing where, like, I love the, the power move of telling people no, but it's more like, I do not want to create this brand where people think that I, I tolerate that sort of stupidity. And I don't. I do not I have zero tolerance. And I, I'm very assertive. Like, if I've had someone in the studio lie to me, and I, I caught them in the lie, but he, he, like, tried to, like, play through it, and I, in front of his friends and in front of my team of interns and assistants at the studio, I called them out. It's like, hey, that's not true. You just lied to me right now. And, like, I called them out. Like, I'll be really assertive. And that's difficult for me, because I'm not naturally a super—I'm Japanese, dude. Like, I'm not that assertive. <laughs> like, culturally speaking, <laughs> Japanese people are not assertive. But I've, I've had to take, like, assertiveness training and become more self-aware of, like, you know, speak thinking what I speak. And, and those boundaries, at first, in the short term, has really hurt me. Like, for example, like, when I stop tracking completely. But when I stop tracking completely, people's respect for me as a mixer went up incredibly because there's nothing else that I do. Like, I specialize in mixing. Who are you going to hire? The doctor that can do everything or the doctor that only does works on the heart if you have a heart yeah. problem, right? Yeah. So, so it's like a perspective thing. I didn't get better as a mixer. Just people saw me, respected me more when I stopped trying. So it's that. Like in the short term, when I stopped mixing, it hurt. Like financially, it hurt. I stopped making as much money. But after a year or two, I'm making more and I'm happier with my work and I love my clientele. So yeah, I'm huge on boundaries. I will, excuse my language, I will never be anybody's bitch. Like I will not bend over backwards for anybody especially now that I have children and I have a family and like I have employees and I have people that 
are riding me for this. So if I bend over backwards for someone, I'm hurting their family. Ooh. It's not just me. Yeah. So if, if I bend over backwards for me now, I have so much responsibility that I'm not just effing myself over, I'm hurting somebody else. So I'm doing the most selfish thing ever. So I have to be assertive and set my boundaries so I can give them the service that they want, the client wants, and give them the attention that they deserve, as well as for anybody else that's helping me out and working with me, I won't let them down. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's amazing. That resonates with me when you talked about um, not engineering anymore because I, that's what my career was for like 15 years. But when you're sitting in there, I'm sure you've experienced this, when you're tracking the pop vocals and the hip-hop vocals, like no one ever sees you as the mixer. You know what I mean? And so I feel you on like setting boundaries. And that that's new for me in the last like four or five years. And it's like life-changing because you're right. It hurts sometimes because people that you love working with disappear. But then the people that come on board are like the people that you love. So this is really interesting. One of my good friends is Bob Horn, if you're familiar with Bob Horn. Yeah, a little bit. Like in the last couple of years, he had like a stroke or like he had some medical issues and he was out of the game for a little bit. And it was quite frankly, he told me that it was kind of like due to stress and unhealthy eating habits and unhealthy habits. And this was so interesting. I talk about this quite often on my podcast is the reason why I started becoming much more hardcore about my boundaries was because of Bob's influence. He said he was the dude that felt like he got a lot of work because he was the dude that was willing to bend over backwards and then that's it's like that makes it sound bad, but was more customer service oriented than most other people. So he got these gigs because he was just he was the dude that you could call up at three a.m. and then he would drive back to the studio after being woken up just to bounce another revision because they said they couldn't wait another day. And he felt like that was a big reason of why he was able to do better and get bigger clientele and work with so many people. And one of the times we were hanging out, I asked him, I was like, "What's general advice for me?" Like, you have a lot more experience. What do you recommend? And he's talked specifically about that and then, and also retrospect to his, his health problems and how that all of that kind of led to his health problems. And he said, in the 20 years that I've been doing this, now in retrospect, it has never been worth bending over backwards for anybody. Because every time I bent over backwards for someone, that was a temporary client and the ones that stuck around and made me the most amount of money always played within my rules. And so it was not as helpful for my career as I thought it was. It was not worth the health problems. It was not worth the mental health problems. And he says, I wish I never did that. And so that's when I became a huge stickler for like boundaries. Yeah. And, and for him, it led to serious health problems. But like, hopefully that doesn't happen for anybody else. But, and that's the reason why it was such a big deal for him. But even if it doesn't lead me to serious health problems, I believe him. Like I will never... I will never sacrifice my health, my mental sanity, my family time for a client that's only temporary. And, and I don't mean to keep talking. I, I know I'm like just words are flying out of my mouth. I apologize. No. Uh, but I learned a lot from my CEO as well. Um, the CEO from Launchpod Media. One of the biggest rules we had in the company for all of us, including the other owners, is if a client or customer calls us, emails us, anybody in the company after or before business hours or on the weekends, it is against the rules to pick up and to solve their problems no matter how much they mark the email super urgent. You are not allowed to answer anything outside of company time. And at first we're like, oh, but we're customer service oriented. We got to give them the best customer service ever. But actually because of that, 
we were able to better serve them within the company hours and we created a culture where nobody ended up doing that. It's like when we call the post office and it's like, oh, you've called out of office hours. Please call back on Monday. And you're like, oh, for like 30 seconds you're upset, but then you just kind of like, all right, whatever. And then you call back in on Monday. Like, <laughs> like it's, it's not that big of a deal at the end of the day. And so it's like, he kind of taught me that there's no such things as emergencies. And people can wait because we know as engineers, there's so many times where they're like, we need this mix tomorrow or need this revision tomorrow. And then you give them the mix of the revision tomorrow. They don't even end up seeing the email for a week. And they're like, oh, you did that the next day. Oh, thank you. It's like, yo, I did this for you. And you didn't even look at the email. Like, oh, what man. a joke. Oh. So, like, And so that sort of like mentality, I love it. Like, I, I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I know I only play a small role as a mixer. Like, I'm only a, a like a humble mixer, right? But you're gonna play within my rules, like that is, not, and I don't want any clients, no matter the credit. Like I will sacrifice income and clients in exchange, again, for my boundaries. Yeah, well, you'll find the people that want to play by your rules, and everybody will be happier. I've bent over backwards more times than you know I care to admit, and I can agree that basically it was never worth it. You know, every once in a while, it might get you a few more gigs, or you know, maybe that client will stick around. But you're right; it's like the most demanding and the and the craziest of them all are also the most fickle that will wander around. Everything is so transactional. They need it right now. I want this right now. I want this right now. You send it to them. They don't respond. Then two weeks later, you do a revision. They're done. They never come back because they're just like bouncing around from like mixer to mixer to mixer. They also never release any music. That's another parallel I see. The super demanding people, they like never finish anything <laughs> despite the fact that they paid for it. You know, you're like, oh, what? This does does if you don't put music out, it's not not a win for anybody. Not you, not the mixer, not the mastering engineer. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Oh yeah. I have some yeah. funny stories about saying no, but we won't get into it. <laughs> I have funny stories about saying no. So we were gonna talk technical mixing, and then we talked bending over backwards and how nobody should ever do it. But let's do one like mix trick. Like what? I know everybody gets like a new plugin, or they have their new toys and stuff that they're into. You got like one thing that you're really into right now that you don't mind sharing? Oh. Yeah, I have a mixed trick. This is a this is a DK special. Okay. It's not really a trick. In fact, it's just a workflow thing and this may not work for you. But I mix the bass first. And it's it sounds weird, and I talked about this on Ben's show. Yeah. First off, a lot of people start with vocals first. I start with the instrumental first, which is not that weird, right? Most people that start with instrumentals start with the drums and specifically the kick drum. And so what I would do is I would work on the drums, get down, to, then I would work on the bass after I spent so much time working on the snare, the hi-hat, the overheads, blah, 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 whatever else, and then I get to the bass. And by the time I get to the bass, I've already kind of forgotten what I did with the kick drum. So I'm less focused on, and I have to do a lot more work trying to get them to work together, the bass and the kick. So I started working on the bass first every single time. So I set like a foundational level for the bass and tone for the bass, and then I immediately go into the kick. So I, the first thing that I do is make sure that the kick and bass, for me, like a foundational part of most pop and hip-hop music, R&B, pop, and hip-hop, which is a genre culture, right? I get those foundational frequencies figured out first, and then I move into the rest of the drum kit and then the vocals and whatnot. So like for me, that really works for me. And I'm a huge advocate of like working on the bass and kick drum first and right next to each other. So they're front of mind and you figure that shit out before you figure anything else out. But as far as like a trick goes, I don't know. I don't really believe in tricks. I live stream a lot my mixing 
And um, people always be like, DK is that mixer that likes to use third-party plugins that nobody's ever seen before. He's such a hipster of plugins. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't buy and use plugins because nobody else has them. I buy and use them because I honestly think they sound good. And I go out of my way to experiment and try a lot of different things to see what works for me. One of the things that I downloaded recently, this is a hot topic because it just came out. I'm debating whether or not what I want to talk about because I'm not sponsored by them or anything like that, but um, is Jason Joshua's The God Particle that just came out. And I just tried the demo. I ended up buying it because it was on sale in the initial period. Have you tried it yet? No, I I just messaged you because I was like, what is that? Yeah, I ended up buying it actually after trying it for a few days. Uh, there's a few things that I don't like about it. There's some things that I like it. I'm hoping that it becomes useful in future mixes. I mix into a totally empty mix bus. I will never... Oh, okay. As of right now, I do not foresee me ever mixing into... I just don't like the idea of like mixing into boundaries or like mixing into bindings. Oh, you said you love boundaries. No, yeah, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm not... That's not the right word, like... Yeah, I don't want to mix into something that's squishing the mix. Like, I want to make sure that, yeah. So, like, and I like to do those things on purpose because I also do a lot of mastering separately. I will not ever market that I'm a mastering engineer, but I would say that most of my commercial work and label work is with mastering, actually. Although I will never say that. I'll never promote it because I'm a mixer. Uh, Hire me for mixing. But because of that, like, I like to do the mix bus processing almost like a as a mastering engineer like i like how i can adjust the tones afterwards it's just a it's a personal workflow thing i just don't like how limiters and compressors or eqs afterwards kind of like boxes in and limits because if you i feel like if you do like 10 bvs boost of an instrument with a limiter on it doesn't make as big of a change as if you did that without a limiter so like i'm very nuanced with my like my fader rides and things like that and so like, I just like to do that afterwards. It doesn't matter if you do. I'm not saying that it's better or not. That's just a personal workflow thing. I got that from, uh, I have a lot of influence from like Leslie Brathwaite, who is one of my mentors. And um, him and I are very similar. Like we're very minimalist kind of mixers, except I'm a musician. Like I had a band. I like almost got signed to as an artist to Republic at one point. Like I am what I define or call as a producing mixer. Like I literally was working on a mix before this interview and I was like, and granted, this is a client that I work a lot with and I'm very friends with. And from a mixing perspective, when the chorus hit, there wasn't enough aggressive mid-range. There was more aggressive mid-range in the pre-chorus, which made the chorus feel really weak. So I just pulled out my guitar and just added some guitar riffs to thicken it up just because I needed these frequencies. Like, I'm that kind of mixer. I love that. Like, if I think vocal chops sound great, I will do that. So I'm a musical producing mixer. So it's... I forgot where I was going with that. But um, that's just... That's just how I think. That's just how I am. Yeah, I don't really have any mixed tricks. Uh, use use clippers. I don't know. <laughs> you heard it here first. Clippers, people. Clippers. Uh, yeah, I don't know. The God Particle is something to look into, though. I did, I did like what it did. I'll have to check it out. It's specifically the middle knob. Specifically that middle knob. Everything else, the, the limiter and the EQ was d- decent, but the, the middle knob is dope. Who made the plugin? It's a new company called Cradle. I don't oh. know if it's his, but okay. it's called Cradle. Um, it's about 100 bucks, but I bought it for like 80 bucks. It's on sale for the initial release. Yeah. It's an interesting one. But uh, you know what else is coming out that I'm interested in trying out? I just got an email today from uh, uh, Isotope. So 
Isotope is coming out with Neutron 4. I don't know if you heard ah, this. I didn't. I, I haven't yeah. looked at my email yet. So this is interesting. Uh, we're going to try that out. I just got some pre-release codes today that Lou and I are going to try out. Nice. And uh, Nice. That might be dope. Yeah. They make great stuff. Yeah. I, I don't really... <laughs> I wish I... I probably do have a lot of mixed tricks that like... But I have what I call like the math teacher syndrome where like I'm so automated that like I kind of forget how like that these are things that people have to think about <laughs> you know like right right yeah <laughs> so I, I don't know yeah get it loud get it sounding good <laughs> amazing mix emotionally <laughs> since you you're all about systems do you have a very specific like prep requirement like do files need to come to you in a specific way does that help you or are you will you accept anything and have your team clean it up for you yeah so I have a pdf that I send out for every new client it's like a six-page PDF of nine steps and a checklist afterwards, a summarized checklist afterwards, like how I want my stems prepared. And it specifically says things like, if you use Logic, the default stem exporting option, track exporting option, has normalization on. Turn that shit off. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's like, it, gets in, it gets into quite as detail. And then from there... Yeah, oftentimes I have a, an assistant that I pay per mix to to um, to prep for me with a specific color code, and I have a manual, so like I can give someone new that I'm training. Maybe I run through how it works, but I have a manual of like exactly how to color it, how things route, and it's more of like a routing thing. It's not I don't have them really pre mix unless I ask them to, which is rare right. nowadays. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, I have a PDF. <laughs> Amazing. Do you ever get pushback from clients? I get more like questions. I have people that like ask me questions to further explain some of the things that they want or that I'm asking for, but no, I don't get pushback from them. people. Would be like, "Oh, you have to get it a certain way." Oh. and and again, going back to the boundaries, if anybody ever gives me pushback about that, I'll say no. I don't want to work with you. Yeah, like if you're not going to respect me to enough of my time to name the tracks because I asked for it, then I don't want to work with you. I'll can you send you to someone else. Name the tracks. Why would you do something out of hand like that? <laughs> Audio 1 through 52, man. That's the only way to work. <laughs> Please. I will say, though, that like most of the times, I want stems with the plugins on it. Like, I want wet stems. Yeah, same. And same. oftentimes, I prefer... Like, I, I used to hear... I don't hear it as much anymore, but I used to hear a lot of, like, YouTube videos or uh, other influencers of various levels say make sure that the RMS is minus 18 and you take off all your plugins and all that. Uh, no, send it to me exactly the way you mixed it because you did half the work. I would love to finish it, not not start from scratch. <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day, actually. It's like now that, you know, all I do is pretty much mix, I have a totally different opinion from when I was like engineering like a decade ago. Like I was new I was working for this pop guy. We were doing like a bunch of Disney music and every once in a while, like we'd have to send files out. Like, you know, and like I had to send files to Chris Lord Algae. I had to send files to so-and-so. And, you know, it's like there was a firm line between people that wanted nothing. Like take all the plugins off, take all your automation off and send me the files. And then there were these people that wanted everything. And so I was so mad because, you know, you spend all this time on the rough mix and the like the working balance and I would get so pissed when I sent it to those people that wanted everything on it. And now that the tables are turned, I can't believe I was mad because it's so much better. It's like, I don't want to recreate what everybody loved. I want to yeah. make it better. That's more fun for me. It's what you're paying for. 
But I was, oh man, I used to get so mad, like to the point where I would go and complain to my buddies, like, this should be co-mix credit, blah, blah, despite the fact that I was like 22 and whatever I sent them probably sounded like shit. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, you know what I mean? It's just like, but once it flips, it's just like there's so much production in pop music now and hip hop that it it's a waste of time to have to recreate that stuff. The stems have to be as close to what everybody's listening to as possible or it's really frustrating. Can I ask you this? Well, first off, I think to finish that, yeah, I'm. This is. I understand that I'm generalizing, and this is very low IQ. But I'm going to generalize and say something. I think that the further along you get, and the more professional you are, you realize that you never want dry stems <laughs> unless it's that bad that you need it. Oh yeah. Like <laughs> if you're asking for totally dry stems, I think that's. I think it can show a level of uh, inexperience for sure. And. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was really bad. I'm sure that there's many people out there that are extremely professional. I understand that was really dumb, but... Um, uh, that, that's cool. So I want to ask you one more kind of random question before we close out. And that is, you do a lot of content. You put yourself out there building your brand, like we talked about. You have your podcast. You do Twitch streams. You mix. You master. You have educational stuff that I saw on, on your website. You've got all your side businesses. There's got to be an active choice to kind of diversify where your income comes from, right? Is that where a lot of this comes from? Because I feel like engineers, like you were talking about the lack of scalability earlier. It's like when you're sitting in the chair, you're getting paid, you're not sitting in the chair, you're not getting paid. And a lot of times people think the only way to make any money is royalties, which we both know is an epic hit or miss at times. You're, you're going to win or you're going to get nothing. Do you encourage you know, music professionals to try to diversify in some way to look for these additional sources, maybe making sample packs or or whatever? Yeah. How do I want to say this? If you're not diversifying or if you're not, if you don't have other ways of making income, then I think you're really hurting yourself. I don't think you have to do everything. Like if you don't want to make samples, don't make sample packs. Agree. <laughs> or create a system so somebody else will make sample packs for you. But like, Take the time. I think ideation is like the most important part. Like people talk about executing, but assuming that you can execute stuff, like Mr. Beast talks about this with his content, like how much time and effort him and his team put into thinking of ideas that will perform well is what makes him one of the, one of the biggest channels on YouTube ever. Yeah. And so... I'm a big fan of ideation. Like, oh, we don't have the budget to do that right now. Well, then there's probably an idea to do something similar or something along the same lines without having to spend money. Like, it's an ideation thing. It's not you can or can't do it. So you should always be diversifying, like for the sake of retirement, for the sake of passive income. I don't think the goal is passive income. I know a lot of people that are making really good money from like real estate and it's all passive, but they're bored out of their minds. I'm the type of person that just cannot be bored. So <laughs> the goal for me is not passive income. It's to make money doing things that I love. And I give myself the room to find ways. Like I made a podcast because I like to talk and I know I'm, I talk too much. <laughs> and <laughs> I do Instagram because... Maybe there's a little narcissistic tendency of it or like that's or maybe I found out through st statistics that that actually helps my brand through analytics and or whatever it is. And or maybe it was because Gary Vee told me to. And I was like, all right, Gary Vee, let's do it. And <laughs> whatever, <laughs> whatever reason it was. Yeah, you should be diversifying. And I know a lot of like engineers as well that go into day trading. So they trade stocks and that's one of their ways of diversifying. Like you're dumb if you don't diversify. Like uh, I, I will say that like that's another really general statement. But I think most engineers and most people do naturally. And I'm not saying you have to make Instagram content. You have to make a YouTube channel. 
if you like to do day trading or if you like to babysit children or if you like to make kids books or if like if you just honestly just want to make stupid lo-fi beats because you just like lo-fi or like you like to make jazz but that is not musical in any sense like if that's your thing do it like it doesn't matter i think diversifying is more of like experimenting with yourself and figuring out what makes you happy. So like for me, I didn't diversify for the income. I diversified for personal fulfillment. Because in my life, more than anything else, I'm trying to be very Buddhist and stoic because I have a lot of problems where, and I'm sure many people relate to this, like I have a hard time letting myself be happy. And I used to have a lot of issues with like imposter syndrome or like feeling really insecure. And I have to actually work at feeling confident at feeling like I'm good at this job and like that I enjoy doing what I love and for me that takes actual like sweat and effort to get to that point emotionally and mentally and when I diversify that's me trying to find things that I love because I love it I'm not trying to make money with it I just happen to make money with podcasts I happen to make money with my kids songs and books. But I would have done it regardless. If there was no chance of making money from it, I would have done it anyway because I wanted to spend time with my wife, who's the illustrator for it, and I wanted to do a project together. I have this incessant desire to just create and do things because I love it. Yeah. And like, for example, like last month I started painting and I am not an artist. I cannot draw a stick figure. But like... <laughs> I was watching some like videos and like TikToks and people doing it. And I'm like, I love colors and textures. Like this feels like it would be fun to do. That's amazing. And so I, I think naturally people diversify. And this is like, thanks to the ADHD that I have where like, I can't do one thing. <laughs> but um, yeah, as far as, okay, hold on. I have a, I have a lucrative idea here. Okay. okay I'm not ever planning on selling my art but I'm going to make a big canvas piece, maybe a few big canvas pieces. It's going to look like shit because I'm not an artist, but it's just fun. It's cathartic. It's meant to be cathartic. That's why I do it. It's not meant to be good. And I'm going to sell it on eBay for like fifty dollars to $100,000. Nobody's ever going to buy it, but I'm going to list it for fifty dollars to $100,000. So anybody asks me like, oh, DK, this art, did you make this? Yeah, I made it. It's like, oh, and like they ask me as a friend like, oh, how much is it? Can I buy it? It's like, ah, oh, no, you can't afford it. It's $75,000 for this piece. They're like, oh, but I'll give you one for free. <laughs> so like I give, I'll give them pieces for free. I don't know. There's just, just a dumb fun ideas that I think of. Uh, anyway. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, you definitely should diversify and for the sake of your own mental sanity, for personal fulfillment because you want to. I love that answer. You really answered that question in the correct way. I didn't really pose it in the best way possible, but I, I, that was a Great answer. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> no I'm sorry for yelling. I'm just really, I'm just really caffeinated right now and just really that's fine. excited. It's fine. We got a compressor. <laughs> we got a compressor. Well, I, I've got two questions that I close the show with, but I did want to say that people should go listen to your podcast. We didn't really talk about your podcast. I was going to ask you more about it, but we kind of mentioned it. Uh, you and Lou have a really good banter. You have stuff in there for like every skill level. I mean, I've I've listened to episodes like I've been doing this for like 16 years, and I listened to one the other day that was like you know, how to choose your pricing. Like you guys hit a lot of topics that I think my audience would be into. So people should go check that out. And you did mention your kids books. Do you want to tell us about the kids books? Cause I just had a kid, so I'm, I'm interested. Yeah. First off, they're totally free. The online digital copies, like the PDF manuscript that you can download, totally free. That's cool. And the physical copies are 10 bucks on Amazon. You can also just stream the music on YouTube or on any streaming service. 
But if you want to, so we like made purchasing it, like physical copies or the music an option. So all the words in the books are actually lyrics to a lullaby or like a song for children. And then in the three song album that we come out with for each book, there's a, a karaoke version. So parents can sing the book to their children, as well as an audio book if you just want to listen to me just reading it. And the first one's about like bedtime. And the second one's about introducing a new child to the home. And that one's not as general. It's more specific to my son, which is a whole crazy story there. And then the third one is about potty training. And I'm going to tell you right now, the song I wrote for potty training, it's lit. It is so good. <laughs> it is so good. Because my wife would say like during potty training, make him wear like just his underwear. She'd be like, keep him dry. Keep him dry. Keep your pants dry. And he's like, okay. And, and the song's called Keep Him Dry. And the chorus is like, keep him dry, my mom tells me. Uh, sometimes I miss and I'm embarrassed. I'll try my best to be less careless. Thank you for loving me. At times I know I try your patience, but thank you, thank you, thank you for helping me pee. It's it's fire. It's fire. <laughs> it's it's so it's a good song. Um, and good. it's again, it's totally free. If you're nieces, nephews, or a parent, check it out. That's cool. Yeah, I've been I've an eleven week old daughter, and we've been you know reading books. And man, some of these kids' books are awful. <laughs> They're like I feel like some of them are actually written by AI. Like, it's, like, not even really good grammar. And, like, I'm I'm just thinking to myself, I was like, and I, I was thinking it because you said you were doing some on Secret Sonics. And I was like, I could write a better book than this. I was like, some of these books are just really bad. And then there's, like, the classics that, like, have been around for, like, 50 years. And they're good. <laughs> but then some of these books are just like, oh, my kid's not going to be any smarter if I read them this book. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check your books out, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick them up Thanks. and read with my daughter. Yeah, it started because... My youngest, and we won't get into this story. I'm not going to get into my life story. You can, we can do this another time, but, um, and you can research about me, but basically my youngest is, uh, was born with Down syndrome and was unable to come home from the NICU for about eight months. So it was during that time oh, wow. that we started writing the books. And so at first it was like a fundraiser thing to help us support with like hospital bills and whatnot. So that's why the second book is so personal and special to me because it's about him coming home. Oh, it's amazing. And he's got like a big scar and he he just grew really long hair. So he's got like a samurai top knot. So the book is called My Brother's a Samurai. And he's like, he's got a scar on his chest. Has he been to war kind of thing? Ah, okay, yeah. I saw that one when I was looking at the website. That's really cool, man. That's a good story. Also, having a special needs baby is like the best PR ever. Like everybody just assumes that I'm a good person because God would never give anybody bad a child like that, a special child like that. So it's just like, I could be a murderer, but people think I'm good because of my youngest child. <laughs> oh, and also because I have like a special needs kid, I'm allowed to have a favorite. You know how much stress that relieves for me as a parent? Like if my oldest asks, like, who's your favorite? Well, duh, he should be your favorite too. <laughs> Sorry, I'm done. I'm done. That's, that's good. That's amazing. Thanks for sharing uh, your your family story there. Um, let's do this. I know you got to get back to work. I, I got to go inside and see my baby and maybe read her a horrible book until I get your book. <laughs> but uh, so I've got two questions I end the show with every time. First one I'll throw at you here. Was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Ooh, many times. I like this question. I don't know. <laughs> I think this is something that I'm always working on. And I think I've redefined it to myself often. When I was a kid, it was money because my dad cared a lot about money, which led to different things. But <laughs> we won't talk about when I first started off as a musician, it was fame. When I got married, which is I got married when I was like 21, 22, 
Oh, wow. Uh, so I'm really young. So I've never had a party phase. Like, <laughs> I never did parties. <laughs> like, why am I so successful? It's because I've never had a party phase. <laughs> I'm teasing, I'm teasing. I think at times it's been, again, back to income at some times or back to how many listeners my podcast has, the number of Instagram followers. I've defined it in so many different ways. Now I define it as how happy I am. And I talked a little bit about this briefly. And this is this is a really hard one because how what makes me happy like sustainably happy like not yeah. just like I had ice cream and I was really happy in that moment but like like long term no regrets like joy right and if I'm happy and I can go to bed sleep well and if I say like I'm not a perfect person so if I apologize often and fess up to my mistakes and I spend time with my children and I make sure my my family is good and I have constant communication with my wife and my marriage is stable and things that I really care about, like that I honestly care about, then that's enough for me. I'm at a weird phase where this is kind of like making me feel complacent about things that the world is telling me I should care about. Like about the credits and the plaques. But I, I feel like it's the opposite. I really feel that me focusing on me being happy, not like selfishly, because I can't be nice to other people if I'm not happy. Sure. So me focusing on being stoic and like very Buddhist, as far as like principles go, very self-aware and happy with myself. The more I accept myself, the more I'm able to give, the more I can be selfless and the less I'll regret. So I think for me, success is defined as how I feel when I wake up every day and how I feel when I go to bed every night. And it has nothing to do with my credits. I feel like my credits and my clout and the fame and the money that I thought it was earlier in my life will come if I take care of this stuff. Yeah. And I've seen this time and time before. That stuff doesn't come, and I've noticed this now. Even though I'm young, I recognize this, where that stuff doesn't come no matter how famous you are. And I won't name names, but I've met very successful Grammy-winning engineers that still have complexes of approval. Like they just constantly cannot help but seek some sort of approval. Yeah. And it's like, bro, you have Grammys. Like what more approval do you want? Like You have approval. And for me, that's just, I think those things will come if I'm happy. I got to take care of that stuff first. So that's that's success to me. Sorry, long-winded answer, but. No, that, that's a great answer. There's, a, there's something, I swear I just talked about this on another episode, whatever, if they're side by side. It's good to hear twice. There's something about uh, the music industry where people especially engineers and mixers, they're like seeking peer approval so much. Like there's so much validation that they need to feel like they did a good job. And it's like, like you're saying, it's because they're not comfortable with something and they're not worried about their happiness. But it's like, I've seen it, I've done it, I still see it around. I do it too. Even though I'm aware of it, I still do it. Yeah, you catch yourself or, or you really hope somebody texts you and says, that mix sounds great, man. I loved it on New Music Friday, but then nobody texts and you're like, maybe it wasn't that good. <laughs> yeah, no, for real. And because I used to be a musician and, and a songwriter, a producer, an artist. I still produce and songwrite, but now for other people. And I stopped doing those things because those feelings of I needed self-approval became so bad that I couldn't write a song that was good enough for me. Right. But And this is the reason why I do mixing is because no matter any time that I mix anything, for some weird reason, my brain is wired. So every time I finish every single mix without any sort of exception here, I come off 
with the mix being like, I am the best damn mixer on this planet and nobody can touch me. It's like the most like confidence and still, I don't know why my brain is wired like this. It, I think it's like really not healthy to a certain degree, <laughs> but like, <laughs> but it doesn't matter whether or not I'm good at mixing. It just, I'm really grateful for the fact that I can finish a mix and no matter how bad or good it actually sounds, I feel like I did a great job. And that is something that I will never, ever be able to give up. Like that's success to me. I love that. That's a good trait to have. Uh, so last question before we go is uh, what right now is your current biggest goal and what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? This is great that you brought it up. I think I should be thinking about my goals a little bit more often as they've changed since the last time I've actually written them down. I have some goals that I make every year for the year that I have on like whiteboard, on a whiteboard right next to me. Cool. Um, I will say I'm less of a goal person and more of like systems and habits person. I have goals more to kind of give me direction, but the problem with goals is that every time I achieve one, it's just like, now what? And it doesn't actually make me feel happy. So I'm more about like, if I'm reading every day and if I go to bed on time, wake up on time, if I'm mixing every day and doing my work every day and I'm like working on manuals for the studio or, or different systems, over time, that's going to end up becoming something good. But I, I do think the goal that I have now is just increasing my income. Uh, I think that goes into wanting to buy a house. Um, I, ha I haven't decided whether or not I want to buy a house here in L.A. I mean, I know that the housing crisis thing is like actually calming down a little bit, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it's more hopeful in the future, the housing market. But I'm also not decided. Like, if I get Grammys and plaques over time, I would love to just move to like Tokyo area, like to Japan and just work remotely from there. Yeah. But uh, I think the goal is to increase my income by a specified amount that I've written down on my whiteboard for the sake of being able to take out a loan and pay that loan back, being approved for a loan. Yeah. So I think that's a goal of mine. Amazing. Well, you know, you were kind of like hinting at at the beginning of the question uh, it sounds like you're more of like an input versus output person. Like you're more focused on the energies you put in, less focused on like outcomes, which I think is cool. That's like a total Atomic Habits vibe. Oh yeah, super yeah. James Clear, yeah. Exactly, that's that's what I was getting when you started answering that question. So yes, I'm with you. I, I actually, if you can't figure out how to get to your goal, it's much better to focus on the effort you put in. It's like going to the gym. Like if you want to bench press 200 pounds, you got to just, go every day and bench press a little bit more. I think working out and like growing a career, exercise and growing a career, are like there's a lot of parallels there because it takes a minute. It's like the incremental work that you put in every day. It's not like, I'm going to win a Grammy this year. And so, you know, you might win a Grammy, but you're probably going to actually do better because of all the other shit you did besides win the Grammy. Like your thousand song year. <laughs> <laughs> and to answer the second half of the question, what's the next step I'm going to take to achieve it? Oh, yeah. I need to better monetize things that I'm already doing. So it's at a point now where I don't need to do more things. I just need to figure out how to better monetize what I'm already doing. <laughs> that's, that's the next step. Amazing. And so like one of the things I did is um, the Mixing Music Podcast, we now have exclusive episodes. So you pay $4 a month or $40 a year to get access to three times the amount of podcast episodes. Ah. Ah, so like, this is something that we're experimenting with seeing if it's successful or not. So that's one of the things I'm doing. There's that A-B testing coming back too. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> testing. So. Amazing. DK, this has been an awesome hang. I'd love to chat with you again anytime. Please 
before we go, share anything you want to share with people, music you're doing, websites they can find you, whatever you want. Yeah, just go to links.dkmixes.com. So that's D-E-E-K-E-I mixes. So it's spelled out. DK is spelled out. Um, but yeah, that's kind of, that leads to almost everything that I do. I found everything you do from there. So I can confirm that that's a good place to go. <laughs> Dude, this was a lot of fun, man. I enjoyed it. Uh, we'll, we'll have to meet up in Los Angeles sometime. We'll see if we can make it happen. And, and for anybody listening right now, I would love to take the time to give a huge shout out and a big thank you for Travis. I, I can tell you firsthand from experience, making a podcast is no easy gig. It's no easy job. And it is very difficult to monetize. So Travis would not be doing this if he didn't give a shit about anybody else. So like <laughs> the fact that he's doing this, it takes a lot more effort than you realize. So as a listener, as well as a friend and, and a fan, like thank you so much, Travis, for taking the time to give to the void <laughs> of, of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. You know, it's, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to come on, man. Thank you so much. That's it for episode 69. Thanks to DK Waddell for coming to hang out with us. Please check out his work, his podcast, and his books. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you haven't left a review for the show yet and you've been enjoying it, I'd greatly appreciate it if you could take two seconds to do that. I also just realized it is possible to leave ratings on Spotify now. So I would gladly take your rating there as well. Finally, don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net. Get in all the conversations going on over there. And on that note, I will see you all next time.